the current state of our nation. In June of this year, Britain voted in a referendum to leave the European Union. This was a wonderful, God-given reprieve to our nation. The Lord is still being gracious to us. However, four months on, the procedure for leaving the European Union has not yet been set in motion. And there have been many voices expressing doubts about the wisdom of the referendum vote. Many in our nation still do not grasp the fundamental importance of nationhood. Also, as we survey the current scene, migration into Europe continues to be a burning issue at this very moment. It is an issue which we simply cannot ignore. One would like to protect one's reputation and ignore this issue. But we must face up to the fact that the scale of the migration into Europe has an enormous significance upon the very concept of nationhood as God ordained it. We have to deal with this issue. We cannot simply run away from it and resort to political correctness if we are being faithful to Scripture. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 29, the Apostle Paul asks, Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. So says Paul, the God of Israel is not just the God of a single nation, but also of the whole earth comprising every other nation. The Greek word translated Gentiles is ethnos, from which we derive our word ethnicity. And it can, with equal accuracy, be translated nations. The Lord, who in the Old Testament period gave a special role in his redemptive purposes to one particular nation, has always, at the same time, remained the God of all nations. Romans 3 29, therefore, is a confirmation, if one were needed, that he continues to be the God of all the nations right now in the New Testament period. And that means that the Trinitarian God is sovereign over our nation. There is absolutely no suggestion by the Apostle Paul 
that nations should never have existed in the first place. Nor that with the coming of Christ they have now become defunct. Nor that they are now morally inferior to federations whereby national distinctions are removed. When Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 28, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, he is stating that men of every nation may receive salvation in Christ. He is not remotely arguing that nationhood should cease to exist. This has to be stated because the power of secular political correctness has deceived many contemporary Christians into thinking that there is something negative and something unchristian about nationhood, as opposed to great unions of peoples where national identity is suppressed. Now in dealing with this whole issue of nationhood and migration, it is very easy to be misunderstood and therefore I do beg people's forbearance. But it is an issue that has to be grasped. Any nation can absorb a smallish number of migrants who must be treated with an absolute equality, courtesy and respect. Scripture, however, does not demand the abandonment of nationhood. This has to be stated. With the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the theocracy, which was Israel, did cease to exist. And the Son of God, established in his death, resurrection and ascension, a kingdom which is not of this world. Indeed, the theocracy began to enter into its death throes some 600 years earlier, with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. This was the beginning of the preparation for the setting up of the messianic kingdom, which is not of this world. The Israel of God, made up of the redeemed out of every nation, and with its citizenship in heaven. This is most definitely a community comprising people of every tribe and tongue. But we need to realise that God has not ordained in the New Testament period the abolition of nationhood. And so, as we consider what does Scripture actually teach here, we find that it has much to say upon this matter. And let us ask this question. 
does the spiritual and universal nature of Christ's kingdom mean that God is now no longer interested in the nations as they currently exist? Does the spiritual and universal nature of Christ's kingdom mean that nations should actually cease to exist? Or that they are, in essence, morally inferior institutions? The answer is, biblically, most definitely not. It could not be clearer in the Bible that the God of Israel has always been the governor of all the other nations as well as distinct entities. And that the ending of the theocracy of Israel was never a signal for the ending of nationhood itself. Nor of God's activity of judging the nations as nations. It is absolutely essential that we as Christians realise in modern Britain that God is judging Britain as a nation. In scripture, we find the Lord decreeing through his prophets what the futures would be of many nations. For example, in Isaiah chapters 13 to 23, we have separate prophetic announcements concerning the futures of ten different countries, nine of them being Gentile nations. Then in Amos chapters 1 and 2, the Lord denounces the transgressions of eight different countries, six of which are again Gentile lands. Then in Jeremiah 25 and verse 15, the Lord tells the prophet, Take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. And indeed we find that Jeremiah is described not just as a prophet unto Judah, but a prophet unto the nations. Following uh, that quotation in Jeremiah 25, 15, the prophet in the subsequent verses lists numerous nations which are the object of God's anger. We thus observe how the Lord determines the destinies of all peoples according to their nationhood. We also read in Daniel 4 verse 25 concerning God's universal government of the nations. The most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. So the government of modern Britain is again, we state, under the sovereignty of the Trinitarian God. Again, in the book of Daniel, we have a vivid example of God's government of the nations being brought into effect 
not just being announced. In Daniel 5, we read how the Lord miraculously causes a hand to write on the wall of the palace of Belshazzar, emperor of Babylon. The terrifying words are addressed not only to that wicked king, but to his nation as a corporate entity. The writing declares, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So the empire of Babylon fell because God had decreed it. Has this same God in the New Testament period, this God who wielded supreme power over all lands and their rulers in Old Testament times, now ceased to possess such power? Of course not. Indeed, it is said of the ascended Christ in Revelation 19, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And so we have to tell the people of modern Britain that they are answerable to the Lord Jesus Christ who continues to govern the nations at this very moment. And that nations which rebel against him will be rebuked by him with a rod of iron. Now Babylon's crime was to lift itself up against the Lord of heaven and to worship false gods. Our own nation right now is repudiating its Christian identity. It profanes the Lord's day. It allows the destruction of life in the womb. And it has corrupted the most ancient ordinance of marriage in order to promote gross immorality in defiance of God's holy law. How we need to pray earnestly that a God-sent hand will not be sent to write upon the walls of our corridors of power and to declare, Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. In June of this year, we received... A reprieve. May the Lord continue to have mercy upon us. We are learning here that we are living under the sovereignty of the God who governs the nations. 
very interesting book was written during the Second World War uh, in 1942 uh, by someone called uh, H. Lacey. And this book was entitled God and the Nations. And it gives a fascinating insight into how in his providential government of the world God deals with individual nations. Uh, and Mr. Lacey writes in this book that as we study the word of God, we shall be surprised how much light is given on the ways of God with the nations and how clearly he sets forth his principles and purposes. The scriptures explain the origins of nations and the apportioning of their lands and the secrets of the rise and fall of kingdoms and empires. So if we want to learn about nationhood, uh, we find so much in scripture uh, on this subject. The God whom we worship is the governor of the nations right now. Uh, we find uh, the origin of nations in Genesis chapters 9, 10 and 11. The sons of Noah after the flood were told to go forth and to multiply across the whole earth. In chapter 10 we actually have set forth the origin of 58 separate and distinct nations. Around a hundred years after the flood, a rebellious generation of men arose in the plain of Shinar. And they tried to unify and communize themselves into a single unit. This was all a fruit of their worship of false gods. And the one true God had to intervene to frustrate their multi-faith unifying plans for a single world empire. The Lord therefore confounded their common language so that they were forced to disperse all over the earth into separate language groups inhabiting separate regions. Mr. Lacey in the aforementioned book states concerning the different features of geography and climate of the various regions of the world, that it is all an aspect of the providence of God, who first called the nations into being by dispersing men from that plain of Shinar. He writes, it is probable that the earth was prepared thus, with all its geographical and climactic variations, with a view to separating the sons of Adam and moving the different families to as many different lands, that there each in its own inheritance might become a nation with its own individuality and live out its national experience before God. So the development of distinct national identities, 
characteristics and destinies, often shaped by geography and climate, is all part of the overall providence of God. For example, that Britain is an island is an aspect of God's providence, which has played a key role in our history and indeed survival as a nation. It is simply not biblical to argue as many in the churches are doing right now, that the erosion of national identities and independence is somehow a glorious Christian objective. Now, absolutely intrinsic to nationhood is the ability of a nation to control its borders. If a nation cannot do this, it quite simply ceases to be a nation. And if it ceases to be a nation, that is contrary to the purposes of God. Many Christians have become seriously confused about this issue. Even to the extent of thinking that it is somehow sinful for Britain to prevent people from entering into the country, if for any reason they wish to be here. And when the word asylum is introduced into the discussion, the churches generally tend to just roll over and argue that all asylum seekers must be accepted and welcomed on the grounds of compassion with no further discussion needed. Now, is that a biblical response? It is actually the case that a third of all claims for asylum are made by people who are already in the UK illegally or whose visas have expired. It appears that many migrants who manage to enter into the country illegally wait until the authorities catch them before actually putting in the asylum claim. This is utterly dishonourable behaviour and constitutes criminal activity. Will the churches face up to this? It is incredible that Christians can turn a blind eye to the deliberate breaking of the law or even condone the breaking of the law. Furthermore, is it right to claim asylum as a refugee when one has already passed over several safe countries in order to reach the United Kingdom? Those waiting at Calais, for example, are already in a safe country and have no grounds whatsoever for onward movement to Britain, other than the realisation that Britain is in the stranglehold of political correctness and so will be a soft touch. We read in 1 Peter 2, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man 
for the Lord's sake. Whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God. And so there we see the obligation to submit to the powers that be, to keep the laws of the land unless they conflict with the laws of God. And so the churches should never condone deliberate law-breaking by those seeking to enter into this country. And yet they do. A further problem is that less than half of those whose asylum applications are rejected are actually ever removed from the country. So many not allowed to stay here do stay here. How many church leaders will ever point out that to stay in a country when one has not been granted the legal right to do so is sinful behaviour in the sight of God? The Migration Watch organisation has estimated that there may be 1.1 million illegal immigrants in Britain. This is criminality on an enormous scale. But should a Christian pastor just keep quiet about it so everyone thinks that he is nice? An investigation by one national newspaper reveals that in 2015, over 84,000 migrants, or around 230 people each day, that is, one person every six minutes was caught trying to enter into Britain illegally. As certain of these then claim asylum, should they automatically become the objects of Christian compassion? Regarding Islamic immigration into Europe, as Christians, we love our Muslim neighbours and always seek an absolutely friendly, peaceful and respectful coexistence. But that does not mean that we should be denied the freedom to express legitimate fears about the effects of large-scale Islamic immigration. Not least because Islam is not only a religion, but also a political ideology which lays great stress on the possession of territory. Any land acquired by Muslims in the UK becomes part of the Ummah, or community of Islam, worldwide. It can never again revert to non-Islamic usage. Islamic doctrine denies the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It plainly usurps the Son of God's role as the final prophet to the nations. Mohammed is a substitute Christ figure. Sharia law demands the death penalty if a Muslim converts to Christianity. 
and often demands it for blasphemy as well, which includes any criticism of Mohammed. It is the situation currently in our land that a special charity has had to be set up to protect Muslim converts to Christ, providing safe houses for them, because they are living in fear of violent recriminations against them from radical Muslims. So right now in modern Britain, People are actually in hiding for no other reason than that they are following the faith which our Queen has promised to uphold in her coronation oath. Now, yes, of course, there are very, very many Muslims who repudiate violence. But that does not alter the reality which we state in love that the teachings of Islam in their normal, universally accepted form as laid down in their own sacred texts and traditions plainly do not facilitate integration into a non-Muslim community but rather encourage separate development. A simple example of this is the existence of around 85 Sharia councils in Britain, which are effectively operating a parallel legal system to UK law in respect of marriage and family matters. It is also important to point out that migration itself plays a central role in Islamic doctrine. Islamic texts teach that Muhammad's migration from Mecca to Medina in 622 AD furnishes a model in subsequent ages for migration to non-Islamic lands as a means of furthering Islam. The Quran is uh, divided up into chapters known as surahs. Surah 4 and verse 100 of the Quran states this. He who forsakes his home in the cause of Allah finds in the earth many a refuge, wide and spacious. Should he die as a refugee from home for Allah and his messenger, his reward becomes due and sure with Allah. Surah 8, verse 74, tells us, Those who believe and adopt exile, i.e. emigrate, and fight for the faith in the cause of Allah, as well as those who give them asylum and aid, these are in very truth the believers. And so we see how migration to non-Islamic lands is an integral part of Islamic teaching and Islamic mission. Two co-authors and Islam specialists writing on the Islamic doctrine of migration, uh, which is known as Hijra in Arabic, state, Mohammed made it clear that migration is a duty that needs to be upheld forever. Immigration is a stepping stone 
for greater goals, particularly of transforming the existing community into an Islamic one. End quote. So Europe today must realise that the scale of the immigration which it is now encouraging in the cause of multiculturalism and so-called compassion will in fact change the character of Europe irrevocably. And as we say that, uh, we reconfirm our love for our Muslim neighbour. It must be declared loud and clear, particularly in Christian circles, that the problems of the world cannot be solved by shipping vast numbers of people of different cultures and religions into Western Europe. But that is how the churches are arguing. It is estimated that some 3 billion people around the world currently live on less than 2.5 US dollars a day and therefore are classified as being in poverty. Again, following the logic of most churches, many of these 3 billion should be allowed to come and live in Britain, regardless of the inevitable social, economic and cultural consequences. Very few give credence to the clear biblical teaching that the economic well-being of nations is in fact determined by the providence of God. And that the countries where poverty prevails need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't need to be denuded of their populations. These countries need the social and economic improvement which the gospel always brings in its wake. Rather than needing to empty themselves of their inhabitants who have the potential to build up their countries. The great problem is that Marxist-inspired political correctness has made most people in modern Britain set little value upon their own history, culture, identity and distinctive form of civilization. Therefore, we can have open borders because we have nothing special to protect. Those who think this way sadly have little understanding of God's providence and of historical reality. There is something very special about the nation in which we live and about the way in which it has developed over the last 500 years since the time of the Protestant Reformation. What is so special is the enormous beneficial influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. This, above anything else, has fashioned all that is good about our society, identity and culture. And this is because the Trinitarian God governs the nations according to his unchanging moral law. 
This reality of God's moral government of the nations is brought out very clearly in Isaiah chapter 3, of which Matthew Henry states, Oh, that the nations of the earth at this day would hearken to rebukes and warnings which this chapter gives. So here in Isaiah 3, the prophet declares of his own nation, for Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord. They declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Isaiah 3, 8 and 9. So we see there that God brings down proud nations which reject his commandments. But the converse is also true. God grants earthly blessings to nations which honour him. This is plainly taught by Solomon in the book of Proverbs when he says, Righteousness exalteth a nation and By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted. The Lord's providential control over national prosperity and social stability is also made clear in Psalm 144, where we read that our garners may be full, affording all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labour, that there be no breaking in nor going out, that there be no complaining in our streets. Happy is that people that is in such a case. Yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. This biblical teaching of God blessing the righteous nation desperately needs to be heard by the population around us today. Even though Britain is rapidly repudiating its Christian past, we still generally enjoy a very high quality of life. And this is due to the ongoing providential blessing of God upon a nation where his name has been highly honoured in the past and where a small praying remnant is still holding back the flood of a crushing judgment. The power of the gospel has been so great in previous generations that we are even now still living on the residual capital of the salt and light which biblical Christianity inevitably brings to any society. By a miracle of God's grace, there still remains with us the embers of a Bible-based Christian civilization, And it is that providential blessing which still makes this nation such an attractive place to live to peoples from all around the world. The journalist Peter Hitchens has stated... I have visited nearly 60 countries and I have never experienced anything as good as what we have here in the UK. 
I am amazed at how relaxed we are about giving this away. Our advantages depend very much on our shared past, our inherited traditions, habits and memories. Newcomers can learn them, but only if they come in small enough numbers. Mass immigration means we adapt to them when they should be adapting to us. End quote. Now this is surely a very reasonable comment, but I suggest that many would smear it as being right-wing or racist. The liberal establishment, the media, and very many politicians must abandon the crude arguments of a sixth-form debating chamber. They must realise that when, on the grounds of Scripture, we advocate strict border controls or denounce the teachings of other religions, we are not remotely being hateful or disrespectful to any individuals in our midst, but we are merely setting forth plain biblical principles for the common good. The Bible makes it clear that all Christ-rejecting religions are false and inspired by Satan. If as a nation and in the cause of multiculturalism we try to incorporate other religions into our national life then God simply cannot bless us. He will not share his glory with others who are no true gods. Yes, we in Britain do allow freedom of religion to others. And we repeat, we love our neighbours whoever they are. But if we set aside Christianity in its unique truth over and against all other religions, this is a deliberate repudiation of the God who governs the nations. We read of a national leader who in fact took that tragic course in 1 Kings 11. Solomon became a good liberal. He became a sophisticated, multi-faith leader of his nation. We read that he went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And we are told in 1 Kings 11 verse 9, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel. So the Trinitarian God is angry with nations which fail to honour him as the unique governor of this earth and as the world's only saviour. This is the reason why today Britain desperately needs the gospel. Therefore, in order to promote the honouring of the one true God in our land, we must continue to give an absolute primacy to the preaching of the message of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Forgetting all the trendy social causes of the secular establishment, but instead calling upon sinners to repent.
That is the message the nation must hear. This gospel of repentance unto salvation is the individual's only hope. And this gospel is our beloved nation's only hope. Amen.